We all need heroes. One of my heroes is a man named William Wilberforce. I can't even say his name. William Wilberforce. Raise your hand if you've heard of that man's name. Okay. So if you know his story, you know that he was a, a politician in England in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He was converted to Christ. He was a vibrant believer. And while in the House of Parliament there, he actually wrote a book, one book, typically titled for a politician. It was called Practical Christianity, right? Practical Christianity. And in that book, he begins by explaining the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Namely, that we as sinners are declared right with God, the holy God of the universe, not by anything that we do, not by any works of our hands, but only through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, by receiving Christ by faith alone in the gospel and his righteousness that's imputed to our account. We are declared to be right with God. And the result of being made right with God, it makes the Christian zealous for good works. And so he wrote a book as a politician called Practical Christianity. But that's not what he's most known for. What William Wilberforce is known most for is the fact that while he was in the parliament, he spent decades pursuing one grand end, namely the, the ending of the slave trade in England and eventually the abolition of slavery completely in the, in the UK. So he devoted his entire political career to the ending of slavery. And this man, if you've ever read anything about him, if you've not read, go online, search up some, some things about him. You'll find amazing stories. He suffered continually setback after setback after setback. He was vilified. He was mocked. He was, he was castigated by his colleagues. But over time, over the course of years and years and years, eventually, through Wilberforce's leadership, slavery was abolished. In fact, it was abolished a couple days before he died. It's amazing. He heard news that they had outlawed slavery a few days before he passed away. Why do I start this message by reminding ourselves about William Wilberforce? It's namely this. What's so striking if you study his story is that the simple connection of a, of a genuine love for others and a passionate zeal for Christ can make an astounding difference in this fallen world. We look around and we see so many evils in this culture and around the world. And we think to ourselves, can we make any difference at all? And we read stories about Wilberforce and we find encouragement. And so to that end, I want to draw your attention to these very same teachings that we find in our passage this morning in the book of Romans. I want you to see from the book of Romans in just a few verses that a genuine love for others and a passionate zeal for Christ are the prerequisites for us to have any lasting influence in this world.
So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Paul's letter to the Romans. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find Romans 12, verses 9 to 11 on page 948. 948, I believe, in the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there or swiping there, briefly, here's the context. You'll remember the book of Romans. Paul is is eager to go to Rome and so he lays out in these opening 11 verse or 11 chapters the gospel of God that he proclaims. Everything that God has done for us in Christ to make us right with him. But then in chapter 12 Paul turns the corner as it were. Paul begins to apply what he's just taught in light of everything that I've said in the about the gospel that you've believed now live This way in light of those teachings, he says in chapter 12, verse one, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so we get down to verse nine and Paul is continuing to give exhortations to the church about how the church is to relate to one another and how the church is supposed to look to the watching world. Notice what Paul says in verses 9 to 11. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Brothers and sisters, genuine love and a glowing zeal for Christ guard the church from two perennial enemies, namely ignorance and apathy. Ignorance and apathy are two perennial enemies in the Christian life. I don't know, that's ignorance. And I don't care, that's apathy, are responses that are always unfitting when it comes to a Christian. When we see evil around us on the last day telling our Lord, I didn't know and I didn't care is not the response we want to give. And Paul says in this passage, the Apostle Paul summons the church to cultivate love and zeal by the power of the gospel. Remember, all of this is in light of what he's done for us in Christ. So brothers and sisters, my main aim in this brief message is to help persuade you to understand that if the church is to honor Christ, if the church is to make any difference in this world, then by the power of the gospel, we must cultivate a genuine love for others and a burning zeal for Christ. That's my, those are two points. Cultivate a genuine love for others. That's verses nine and 10. So don't look at me, look at your, look at your Bibles. Verses nine and 10, cultivate a genuine love for others. And then verse 11, cultivate a burning zeal for Christ himself. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer that he would 
Change us such that when we leave here today, we would love others and be passionately zealous for Christ's glory more so than when we arrived. So number one, cultivate a genuine love for others. Verses nine and 10. Look again at verse nine. Let your love be genuine. There's where I'm getting the main idea of this passage. Everything else in this passage is, is, is predicated on that idea of genuine love. True Christians are to be marked by a genuine love for others. Your Bible, if you're using a different translation, it may say, say, say something like, let your love be sincere or let your love be without hypocrisy. What Paul is teaching us here is this. Not everything that claims to be love is genuinely love. There's such a thing as imposter love. There's something, there's such a thing as fake love or phony love or hypocritical love. Do you remember when our Lord Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot? How did he betray the Lord of love? He leaned, he leaned in and he kissed him. He betrayed his Lord by feigning love. The greatest, most heinous act of human betrayal in human history was cloaked in the most hypocritical love imaginable. So there's such a thing as a counterfeit love. It may look like love on the surface. It may claim to be love. It may sound like love. But upon further examination, it turns out to be fake and false and feigned. So children, if you've ever heard, have you guys ever heard, uh, kids, have you ever heard of, of uh, fool's gold? You know what fool's gold is? It's not. It's called pyrite. Yeah, it's, it's pyrite. It's not, it's not pewter. It's pyrite. Good, good, good question though. So, so fool's gold is something that looks like gold. It shines like gold, but it's worthless. It's fake. It's phony. It's not gold. And that's what Paul is saying. Not every kind of love is actually genuine love. So, look at verses nine and ten. What characterizes genuine love? What characterizes genuine love? We're told several things in verses 9 and 10 that characterize the real thing. What we're told briefly is that love, genuine love, hates, clings, cares, and honors. Let's think of those briefly individually. Number one, genuine love intensely Hates, verse nine, abhor what is evil. Do you see that? Now, that's probably not what you expected. Genuine love, the first thing Paul tells us about it is that it intensely hates. We know that this is connected to genuine love because the word, the verb there, abhor, it's a participle. He's connecting this idea back with what he's just called us to. Your Bible may say hates, or strongly detests. Now, the world constantly says to us that love is blind. But Paul actually says in these verses, love, genuine love, actually has to be able to discern. Love is not blind. Love discerns 
between good and between what? Evil. Love, genuine love, intensely hates what is evil and in tightly clings to that which is good. Now, when we talk about good and evil, especially nowadays, these are categories that are often lambasted and mocked in our age. They're relativized. Good and evil, we're told, is something that you've got to autonomously determine for yourself. It's relative. It's self-determined. But listen, this is not just a modern problem. Think about it. This is a problem as old as Eden. You'll remember that the temptation to be like God, knowing good and evil, was the the temptation that got us in the problem in the first place. All through Genesis 1 and 2, God is the one who makes, creates, and calls something good. And the very first time that a human being decides autonomously what is good is in Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and she ate. So the very first sin was a creature determining the good apart from God's wise and good word as the creator. So brothers and sisters, the fallen human heart is a horrible compass. (laughs) If you want to follow your own heart to find the good, you're not going to arrive there. Our hearts are desperately sick. We've got to look to God's word to learn from him what he calls good and what he calls evil. And again, look at what Paul says. This is a strong word. He says you're not just supposed to look at evil with indifference. You're not supposed to look around and see evil in the world and just kind of shrug your shoulders. Paul says if you are genuinely loving You will see evil and you'll hate it. Now, if I asked you, tell me what you love. Tell me what you love. I'm sure you could tell me a lot of things. You love your spouse. You love the Lord. Maybe you have a a sports team that you love. Some of you are thinking about loving some lunch here in a little bit, right? And... You may not realize it, but your loves tell me something about you. Let's flip that around. What do you hate? What do you hate? What do you detest? What abhor? What do you abhor? What what, is there anything in this world that you see and you think to yourself, that is so wrong And it rises to the level of hatred. Let me ask you this question. Do you hate what God calls evil? That's what Paul's calling us to. If we are going to be a people that is is a genuinely loving people, we can't look with indifference at that which God calls evil and say, "Ah, that's fine. We show that we love our God by obeying his commandments. And he's calling us in this verse to hate that which is evil. Today is, if you notice in your, in your bulletins, there's a lot of things we could talk about in terms of evil in this world. But one of the gross evils in this world is what we see in the evils of the abortion industry. 
Today is the Sanctity of, of Human Life Sunday. Lots of churches are praying this Sunday for this country and for other countries to protect the life of the unborn. I just want you to briefly think about this. Last year alone, sorry, two years ago, this was 2018, Planned Parenthood killed 345,672 children. That's one child every 91 seconds. That means in the span of this sermon, that's 30 children killed. Why do we think that abortion is evil? Because God's word tells us so. Here's a passage maybe you haven't read in a while. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 11. This is when the prophet Elisha goes to Damascus and a man named Hazael, this is the son of the king of Assyria, comes to him. And he speaks with the prophet because the king was sick. If you haven't read this passage, I'll read it to you. In verse 11, it says, And the man of God wept, that is the prophet Elisha, he weeps. And Hazael says, Why does my Lord weep? And Elisha answers, Because I know the evil. Hear that word? The evil that you will do to the people of Israel. The prophet knows that Hazael is about to become king. And he says, I know, I know the evil that you're about to do to the king of, to the people of Israel. And then he tells us what that evil is. Listen to what he says. What evil? He answers, you will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash into pieces their children. And you will rip open their pregnant women. This passage calls the ripping open of pregnant women evil. It was evil in Elisha's day and it remains evil today. Brothers and sisters, the legal genocide of 61 million children in this land since 1973 is evil. The fact that there are more minority babies in New York City that are aborted than are born alive is evil. The fact that 67% of Down syndrome babies in the United States are aborted is evil. The fact that Congress passes laws protecting the abuse of animals, you could even get seven years imprisonment for being cruel to animals. But the dismemberment of infants in the womb is, le is legal. That's evil. And genuine love intensely hates what is evil. We love those who've had abortions. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. We love those who've had abortions. We love them. But we hate abortion. Because God values every life that he has made. If we look upon the genocide of millions of children and we are not filled with a hatred, a holy zeal to see that ended. We have to ask ourselves, are we genuinely loving? First Corinthians 13, six, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. This is vital. We're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that brings us to the second aspect of love. These are a lot quicker. 
But notice there in verse 9, we're not supposed to simply hate what is evil. Look at verse 9. We're to hold fast to what is good. Do you see that? So genuine love doesn't just hate that which is evil. Genuine love clings or holds fast to that which is good. This verb is used throughout the New Testament to describe the way a husband and wife relate to one another. A husband holds fast and clings to his wife because he loves her. And that's what Paul is saying here about Christians. We are to be genuinely loving. And that looks like seeing something that's good and clinging to it, holding fast to it. How do we determine what is good? Look at your Bibles. Look it up. Look up at chapter 12, verse 2. Look what it says. Chapter 12, verse 2. Paul has just told us how to determine what is good. Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, we're told in these verses that through the gospel, through being transformed by his spirit, he begins to help us to discern that which is good. And when we see the good, we're to cling to it. We're to hold fast to it. Um, How many times have you heard the phrase do-gooders? When I was in elementary school, that was like a negative, like so-and-so is a do-gooder, right? I'm not sure why that was ever a bad thing. Like to, I mean, at the end of your life, like all that person did was good all the time. Like that, that's actually a really good thing on your tombstone, right? We're told in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus went around doing good. <laughs> so as a Christian, one of the ways that you're called to be genuinely loving is to be a do-gooder, is to cling to that which is good, to value it, to esteem it, to hold it up and say, this is good. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. Number three, it's not just clinging to good and hating evil, but look at, look at number three, genuine love deeply cares. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Your Bibles may say, be devoted to one another or love one another deeply, some translations say. The church is to love one another like a family. We're to love one another, not like, now we may be a dysfunctional family, but we're supposed to still love one another like a family. We are to love one another genuinely. I was reminded of this passage just this past week. One of our elders, Don Northup, who's not here this morning, he's battling the flu. Um, On Friday, we had a funeral for his mother. She was 97 years old. She was a believer and it was a wonderful, a wonderful privilege and honor to participate in the the funeral service. What I was struck by most of all was during the sharing time when family and friends get up and share about about the life of this woman. I was overwhelmed to hear so many folks in their family talk about the way that Don and Jill and their children have loved 
Dawn's mother, especially over these last seven years where she's had so many health problems, time and time again, what was said was, you all loved her so faithfully. You loved your mother deeply. And that is a wonderful witness to the world, is it not? Jesus says to us in his word, he promises, how will the world know that we are his disciples? By the way that we love one another. This kind of deeply caring love is what's supposed to mark our church. So I ask the question, especially those of you who are members of his church, who are you genuinely loving in this congregation? You're probably, you, you may be quick to, to identify, I don't feel loved in this area. But Paul's asking us, who are you pursuing in love in this church? Who are you caring deeply about? Number four, genuine love, notice verse 10, highly honors. Look what he says. Outdo one another in showing Honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul is saying here that as followers of Christ, if we are those who are genuinely loving, what Paul is calling us to, he's to say one way that we show that we love others is that we actually prefer to honor over and against being honored. We actually, if you think of it, this is a very competitive part of the country. We are actually, as it were, competing to show more honor to others than we receive. We want to outdo, to far surpass others in showing honor. So let me ask you, do you enjoy seeing others elevated? Do you enjoy seeing others honored and lifted up? Paul is saying, if you do, that's a sign that you genuinely love that person. You want them to be honored and esteemed. That's what Paul is calling us to. We're told in 1 Peter 2.17, you want to write this down, really easy verse to write down. It's two words. 1 Peter 2.17, ready? Honor everyone. (laughs) So here's some homework. You're to honor everyone. Everyone that we meet, I know there are some, Paul's going to say later, honor those to whom honor is deserving. I understand that. But there's a sense in which in every such circumstance, we can seek to honor those who are made in God's image. So brothers and sisters, Paul calls us in these two verses to love one another genuinely. And what's so striking, if you've read through Romans, I would encourage you sometimes just take some time and sit down and read through the whole letter of Romans. Try to do it in one sitting. What's amazing is if you read the first 11 chapters of Romans, love is mentioned a lot, but it's always referring to God's love for us. And then you get to Romans 12 and Paul says, in view of the mercies of God, now you love one another. So, Where do we find the resource? At this point, you may be thinking, I I don't love others genuinely and I need help. Where do I look to for help? We look to God. We look to God in Christ. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. Romans 5, 5. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How has God genuinely loved us? He loved us when we were unlovable. He sent his son into the world to die for our sins, to rise again from the dead. And he calls sinners to turn from their sins and to trust in him, to trust in Christ. You will never love as you were created to love until you know the love of your creator in Christ. That's what Paul is teaching us here. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, if the church is to honor Christ, the church is to make any difference in the world. We have to be a people that by the power of the gospel practice genuine love for one another. That's what Paul is saying in verses 9 and 10. Let me close by looking at verse 11. Cultivate, brothers and sisters, a burning zeal for Christ. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I am increasingly convinced that one of the greatest problems facing the church in this land is not merely ignorance, but apathy. We breathe in apathy from our culture like it's secondhand smoke. Back in 1997, this was a statement written in a journal called First Things. Well, someone was asked about the the, the culture of death in this country in 1997. So it's been a while. And this is what one writer said, quote, the problem is not simply with the court or the courts. The problem is also with the citizenry itself. It seems to me that the heart of the matter is this, a culture of a sidia. What is that? We don't know what that word means. It means boredom. A culture of Assidia has taken deep root in the soil of 20th century America, which has led to passivity. We have lost our capacity for justifiable outrage. Can we even be roused to act against wicked practices? So what is this writer saying? He's simply saying that the root problem is that we are apathetic. We see the evil, but we just don't seem to care. We just flip the channel or go to the next website. Your life exists to glorify God. Your life exists to bring honor and glory to him. Look at the end of verse 11. What is the the last thing you're told in this passage is to serve who? is to serve the Lord. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you're to do everything for the glory of Christ. We're told in Colossians 3:17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So all of life is about serving the Lord. That's what Paul says in verse 11. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord in your family. Serve the Lord in your work. Serve the Lord in your political life. Serve the Lord in your recreational life. Everything is about serving the Lord. And you ask, well, how do we go about doing that? What do we need to serve the Lord in all of life? He says two things. Look at verse 11. One positive, one negative. First, 
We're to serve the Lord by not being slothful in zeal. Literally, not being lazy in earnestness. Your Bible may say never lack in zeal. We don't use the word zeal a lot. Zeal is the earnest, eager, willing, diligent commitment to the discharge of a duty. It's the eager, earnest, willing, diligent commitment to the discharge of a duty. In other words, Paul is saying, if we're going to serve the Lord, we want to be on guard against being lazy or lackadaisical or apathetic or bored in our service of Christ. We want to pray for an increased zeal. Look at verse 11. Second thing, he says, be fervent, positively, be fervent in spirit. Notice there in your Bibles, the word spirit may be small s, but I think it's better to understand how other translations take it to be fervent in the spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. And we we see this word fervent in the original. The language is that of burning or boiling. So think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying be fervent. That is, we we should, as it were, boil over in our in our zeal in the spirit. We should be bubbling over. We should be passionately zealous, fervent in spirit. And so where do we turn? Where do we turn this morning if we are not fired up? Some of you are thinking, okay, all this sounds great, but how in the world do I become fervent in my service of the Lord? How, how How can I be passionate like a Wilberforce who spends decades zealously pursuing the cause of Christ and the abolishment of slavery. Well, first, we turn to the Holy Spirit. We ask the Spirit of God to change our hearts. Our hearts will not change by our willpower. They'll only change by God's Spirit transforming us, by us being renewed. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever asked God the Spirit to make you zealous for his name? Have you ever asked the Holy Spirit, make me aglow with zeal for God? Do you think in your own personal life that you are already passionate enough for the cause of Christ? Have you reached the point in your life where you say to yourself, you know what? I'm about to the level of passion and zeal that I want for Christ and his kingdom. I would imagine many of us would say no. And so if we're not there yet, we want to ask God to continue to transform us, to continue to make us more and more zealous for his name. I love the the, the brother Apollos in Acts 18. I love what it says about about Apollos in Acts 18. It says this, he was this, he was mighty in the scriptures and he was burning with zeal for Christ. That's a great thing to pray for everybody in this church. Pray that we would be a people that are mighty in the scriptures and a people who are burning with zeal. I close by reminding you something obvious. We serve a God who passionately and zealously loves us. If you think this sounds really charismatic and we came to a Baptist church, what's going on here, right? We want to be as passionate in our love, 
in the same way that God is passionate in his love for us. Let me close by reminding you of a passage that you may have forgotten. How is God described to us as I close in Zephaniah chapter three? Listen to what he says. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord our God is zealous in his love for his people. And my prayer is that when we think about all that God has called us to, as we pursue the cause of life, as we, as we pursue the cause of the gospel, that we would be passionate and loving and zealous for his glory. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that you would help us not to be apathetic, not to be indifferent to all the evil around us. But we know that we can't do a thing apart from your grace. So we pray that by your spirit and through your word, you would enliven us, that you would awaken us, that you would help us to be passionate and zealous in our service of Christ. Whatever you have called us to, help us to set our hand to the plow and not look back. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's sake. Amen.